family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, and we look forward to some improvisational conversation, searching for insights. Among our topics, transatlantic ventriloquism can get you in trouble, how swarming might save civilization, and video games are now more influential than movies. Joining us with the improv will be our co-host and Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate Victoria Sullivan and Weekend On to Air Warrior Ron Van Warmer. Our special guest at 8.30 will be Gerald Salente. He is the founder and publisher of the Influential Trends Journal. Gerald's one of the leading trends forecasters in the world and we'll get an update on trends that he predicted earlier in the year we'll have live music from the sultan of sonic soul gus mancini an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher patrick carlin and during our music segment a great tv theme song with a real cool jazz edge we'll leave room for surprises because whether we like it or not they tend to find us but we appreciate it. So fasten your seatbelts, grab a cup of coffee, a martini, whatever turns you on. Join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. We're ready to rumble. <laughs> Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Let's start our engines. We'll start with a book I've been reading. Not my favorite book ever, but it, 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 the subject's so important, and it has some really interesting information. The title is Radical Evolution. Subtitle, The Promise and Peril of Enhancing Our Minds, Our Bodies, and What It Means to Be Human. Okay. It's a comedy. <laughs> light reading. It's light summer beach reading. Mm. But actually, I'm going to start with, uh, you know, if you get one really cool fact out of, I mean, really what we're looking for in a book is a great insight. There might, there are some in here. But we're also, sometimes if you just come out with one really cool fact, it just kind of blows your mind. It's mm -hmm. worth it, Right. And uh, we'll get to that fact in a second. But he starts out by talking about a very important acronym. It's an acronym that it probably is starting, has already started to, and most likely will be the most influential trend affecting us, even though most of it will be behind the scenes unless we dig deep. Wow. And that acronym has a really nice feel to it. Grin. 
Mm, grin. Sounds kind of sunny, doesn't it? <laughs> well, in many ways it is. In many ways it's perilous. In many ways it's mind-boggling. The subtitle of the book gives away a little bit of what GRIN stands for. The subtitle of the book, Radical Evolution, is The Promise and Peril of Enhancing Our Minds, Our Bodies, and What It Means to Be Human. Hmm. Uh, Dead giveaway. (laughs) (laughs) What might GRIN stand for? Yeah. Okay, G is obviously Grinch. No, G (laughs) is genetic. Ah. R is robotic. I is information, and N is nano, Mm. as in miniaturized processes. Yes. And these four advances are intermingling and feeding on one another and collectively are creating a curve of change unlike anything humans have ever witnessed. Now... He simplifies it in a very interesting way because we don't think of this as necessarily having anything deep about it. But go back to the uh, Major League Baseball in the 90s when all of a sudden people started looking like Mr. Potato Head. I mean, these massive arms, these massive Mm. heads, right? And these basically, it was steroids and growth enhancement drugs. They were since made illegal. Now, Major League Baseball knew about this long before they did anything about it. Why? Like most things in America. Because they were making money with all the home runs being hit. It was creating excitement. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were battling to break break Babe Ruth's record. Meanwhile, Babe Ruth was an overweight (laughs) alcoholic (laughs) who was such a great athlete, you know, he could set records. These guys were taking... Drugs. Imagine to, what he would to have enhance done on their steroids. In, impossible to even think about. Mm. And they got very enhanced, and probably later they got very ill. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of problems with it. But in a way, what the author is saying is that was the kickoff of what an enhanced human part. Now, that's just purely physical. Mm-hmm. But they were enhanced humans. Right. Now, with the exponential growth of robotics, information, nanotechnologies, as they miniaturize everything, mm-hmm. including intelligence, and most importantly, how we are now able to reprogram the genetic code. Yep. I have a brother-in-law involved in that. We can get him on the show sometime. Let's do that. He's a superstar in nanopore investigations, apparently. In who? Nanopore, <laughs> nano little, um, but I don't know what the nanopore, but it has to do with DNA. He can get DNA down to some kind of little way of doing it now that they, can, they can't do it yet on humans. We have too many, whatever, genomes, but they can do with animals. They can tell what kind of animal blood it is, not in a week or a month, but like in 10 minutes with his little um, gizmo that he made. And what, <laughs> what are they trying to do with it? What is their intention? I think it's scientific. In other words, uh, look at all those crime show analysis things. You find some blood, what's it from? Mm-hmm. And the whole thing of DNA has usually been a slow process. He was also in on DNA sequencing. He's done three big experiments in his life, and he apparently goes to Europe, and people want to take selfies with him. They've never heard of him in the United States. Well, that's not true. He's Let's get him on. The Scientific Academy. I will check out. He's on the faculty at Harvard. They just gave him a big new office because of this nanopore thing. Because huh. it's going to make a lot of money. And he's given it to 
Oxford. So I'll tell you what, uh, uh, write down for me uh, just his name, okay. and and I'll start checking him out. Okay, and I'll yeah. check and out, And then too. We'll, we'll get him on there. On there. Because this is, big, this is a big deal. I mean, literally, think about it. We are, re, we are soon going to have the ability to reprogram and splice our genes, human mm-hmm. genes. Now, let's be honest about it. If something's available, humans are going to use it if it's to their advantage, right? Right. So maybe within our lifetimes, but certainly within the next generation's lifetime, you know, baby boomers, I mean, excuse me, Gen X and, and uh, millennials, are you saying that if it was a affo- if you could afford it, you wouldn't genetically reprogram your infant child to have increased IQ? I think people would be running for that one. You better believe they will. Um, we're gonna have we're gonna be able to genetically reprogram ourselves to to beat uh, to to um, to defeat cancer, to defeat all kinds of diseases. Uh, obviously, humans are gonna be living a lot longer. Um, and if we're reprogramming the genetic code, that means we can reprogram intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> we've all seen, you know, the, and here's a good quiz. What is the story that really predicted all this or presaged all of this? When they cloned a pig? No, the actual, I'm talking about <laughs> uh, from literature. Oh, reprogramming yourself from literature. Mm-hmm. Hmm. We don't think. You want to give us a hint? Well, <laughs> we think of it just as a kind of simple monster story. But in fact, it wasn't. Oh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah. Body parts. Yeah. Gotten Frankenstein was not about creating a monster and, 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 and a chase. No, they're trying to create life. You know, this is Mary Shelley. Right. Uh, yep. Right. Wife of Pierce Shelley. Right. The, the famous Shelley, the poet Shelley. And... She was getting at, you know, science's ability to reprogram the human being. Mm -hmm. And here we are. It's happening. And, um, you know. That was also a warning tale. It was a warning tale. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it didn't turn out so great. No, that's, and that's what you have to know is going to happen with all this experimentation. Some of it's going to run wild. Well, of course. Of course. But they're going to get it down. And it's not that long away. Anyway, this is what this book is about, Radical Evolution. But anyway, he comes up with this fact that I just love because if we really just sit and think about it, it's mind-blowing. Okay? 1913 is not ancient history. Mm. No. Now, we know that because of exponential change, the 105 years ago is might have been like 1,000 years ago. A hundred years ago, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but but 1913, us baby boomers, our grandparents were teenagers. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. This is not ancient history. Right. We're not talking about gladiators, you know, in Rome. We're not talking about Socrates on the streets of Athens. 1913. In 1913, U.S. government officials prosecuted Lee DeForest. They wanted to put him in jail. Lee DeForest... Ran R- was the was the CEO of RCA, the mm. Radio Corporation of America. And the reason the U.S. government prosecuted Lee DeForest is because at an investors meeting, 
He told investors that his company would soon be able to transmit the human voice across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh huh. Uh huh. Charlatan. And so <laughs> the government prosecuted him for swindling potential investors. Uh-huh. It's such a ludicrous idea. Huh. Wow. And if you think about it, it's kind of like super ventriloquism. We're going to throw our voice across the ocean. Yeah. Now, it doesn't make sense to me. I understand our government is, you know, paranoid and all that. But um, in 1913, we didn't have radio yet. No. But we did have the telephone. Now, not most people didn't have telephones, but millions of Americans did have telephones. And as archaic as they may have been compared to our telephones, people were wired together and could talk to mm-hmm. each other across greater distances. So why it was, but no, across the ocean? Yeah, I think that was it. what got them. They could imagine putting phone wires underground in the United States, but they couldn't imagine how you right. could traverse the ocean with wires. And so he was prosecuted. Now he got off, of course, because he's a powerful guy, probably had, you know, could afford the best attorneys. But think about that. About 100 years ago, guy was prosecuted for insinuating you could transmit the human voice across the ocean. And I wonder when the first uh, uh, intercontinental uh, television program was broadcast. Well, television was 1927. Because no wires there to broadcast across right. the ocean. Mm. Right. So... Well, people resist what they think is impossible. It's about paradigm shifts. Our brains, we're we're pattern seekers, and we get stuck in patterns, and we can't see past them. Right. And the person who sees past it is the oddball out. They're the one, yeah, right. The pioneer gets the arrow. Curious, did the government win that case or lose that case? Um, They dropped it. it. Oh, they dropped it. They dropped it eventually, (laughs) but this was a pretty powerful guy. Yeah. If he wasn't, they would have thrown him in jail. Like and when Ted, you think Ted of all the, the frauds have been perpetrated since then, they could have gone after <laughs> some other people. Well, they have. How about Bernie Madoff? Well, <laughs> it took them about 20 years to figure out what he was doing. <laughs> well, it took a lot of people to 20 years, including his best friends, who, yeah. you know, who he, who he... Nonetheless, it was sort of obvious as soon as they looked at it. As soon as they looked at it, they saw what it was. Okay. So here's from <laughs> Radical Evolution... Who wrote the Could, book, by the way? The, the gentleman's name is Joel Garreau, G-A-R-R-E-A-U. And a little bio, he is a student of culture, values, and change. Um, he's written other books. He is an editor at the Washington Post hmm. and a member of an organization called the Global Business Network. He's been a senior fellow, whatever that is. And... Um, <laughs> It's and an honorary title. He's been a jolly good fellow at times. <laughs> yes, right. And he's drunk. Um, at any rate, no, interesting book. Um, it's just a lot of, uh, I think, overly rosy, you know, pictures here. Mm. But and, and you know, I, you know, I'm not. I, I'm trying not to be either an optimist or a pessimist about all this. I try to be a realist. I love the picture on the cover. Is that Eve? Wor- Reaching for the apple Correct. that's going to start everything. And there's the snake. Yeah, there's the serpent. <laughs> and Adam's sort of, it's off. <laughs> he's got second position, right. which is probably correct. So it's an interesting sort of mythic uh, take on human evolution mm, that well, it begins with some kind of trespass. Yeah. 
Isn't that interesting? In the New Yorker magazine uh, this month, there's a cartoon of uh, Adam sitting in a chair watching television and Eve trying to get him to eat an apple. He's going, no, thanks. (laughs) 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 So, well, we've really screwed up the Adam and Eve story. I mean, come on. I mean, it's a sin to be knowledgeable? Give me a break. Um. A lot of governments feel that way. They don't want they don't want yeah. a knowledgeable populace. Well, apparently the God figure in the Old Testament didn't want it either because that was the only tree that was forbidden to That's them. That's right. The it was garden. the one that would teach them the, the knowledge of good and evil. That's right. That you but, would understand. But there's that. another interpretation there. Oh yeah. <laughs> which is that God was being actually um a good parent because he was basically encouraging. He was kicking them out of the garden. In other words, it's it's what we don't do a lot in this in this in our culture, which is get the kids out of the house mm. when it's time to grow <laughs> up. So he knew it would be too tempting, and then the whole of human history would begin with them leaving the garden. Right. In other words, one interpretation would be that he was the parent who realized it was time for the kids to leave. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, is that a... Uh, That's not the one we were taught. I, <laughs> right. I get it. A social worker from Brooklyn came up with that. <laughs> reading. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, could you look up um, inflection point? Because that's the phrase he uses. I know what he means, but I'm not exactly sure what inflection means. It has to do with a bouncing off of some kind, right? To inflect is because like deflect. Anyway, he says we are at an inflection point in history. I just like the phrase. <laughs> Even if we don't know what it means. I'm not quite sure what it means. <laughs> some kind of Well, thrill. we know he means it's a paradigm shift. It's mm-hmm. a leap forward. Right. Okay. So an inflection point is a point on a curve at which the sign of the curvature, i.e. the concavity, changes. Inflection points may be stationary points but are not local maxima or local I'm minima. I'm sorry I asked. I know. No, that's in other words, it's a mathematical term. Well, you can picture it on a curve, and when you reach that top of the curve, you're going to go down the other side. You've ah, come up. It's sort of so like it's the that Ferris's. point at which something right. changes. It's so it's like where the, it changes. It could go down. It could go How about the roller Laura. coaster as it's slowly going up, yeah, and then it reaches just that points. point where it starts? Whoa. And then, and then you scream. Whatever. And then what happens? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So that's a, okay. there's an inflection point. For all previous millennia, that's thousands of years, our technologies have been aimed outward to control our environment, right? Mm-hmm. Fire. Right? Yeah. Um, starting with fire and clothes, we looked for ways to ward off the elements. With the development of agriculture, we controlled our food supply. In cities, we sought safety. Telephones and airplanes collapsed distance. Wow, yes. Right? All outward. Antibiotics kept death-dealing microbes at bay. Now, however, we have started a wholesale process of aiming our technologies inward. Now our technologies have started to merge with our minds, our memories, our metabolisms, our personalities, our progeny, and perhaps our souls. (laughs) He's not talking about our shoe souls. No. Um, Serious people have embarked on changing humans so much they call it a new kind of engineered evolution, one that we direct for ourselves. The next frontier is our own selves. Okay. We are literally transforming human nature. So in other words, as smart as we've become as homo sapiens, 
we've got, gained a little more control over how we've evolved. We've increased our lifespan. Mm-hmm. We've increased our comforts, decreased our pain and suffering to some degrees. Mm-hmm. But now we're literally going to change the way we see ourselves, how we feel, how smart we are. And we're doing that already. I mean, when you take antidepressants, you're changing mm-hmm. your brain chemistry. That's inner. Absolutely, that's inner. It's an example. Um, it's going to get wild. <laughs> it's already wild. It already is. Mm-hmm. But you see, to me, this is this to me is the deeper and more interesting explanation for the political chaos we're in, we're in right now. Not mm-hmm. just here in the United States, but all over the world. You know, it's easy to just say, "Oh, that you know, Trump's a horrible person." Well, he is. But <laughs> you know, I look at the Democratic National Party and what they're doing. You know, they're basically threatening, you know, progressives from getting on the ballot. They don't want progressives. They want moderates. But the, the point is that we're in an inflection point means just like when you just reach the rise in the roller coaster. Not all of this can be controlled. Mm-hmm. Some of it can. Mm. Some of it can't. As, and this is why I want to talk to your brother-in-law, as we start messing around with our DNA, which we are going to do, mm-hmm. and some of it's going to be quite wonderful. Some of it, like Frankenstein, is going to be, because there's unintended consequences. Right. It's a very scary area, and I suspect that scientists are pretty split on just how far we should go into it. But we understand we're human beings. We're curious, and we're not going to pull back. We're not. I'm not even thinking we should. <laughs> you know, hopefully we'll do it more intelligently and less vainly and less um, self-centeredly. But we're going to go do. We're going to do it ethically, hopefully. And we're now. <laughs> Boy, are of, you guys dreamers? <laughs> well, no, it's not dreaming. It's happening. In fact, um, one of the stories I'll be writing for the Trans Journal is on. Uh, we have thousands now of computer scientists, neuroscientists, ethicists, literally w- having discussions and working on teaching computers ethics. Mm. It's a big topic. Huge, yeah. It's happening because people are realizing if we don't, this thing can really get out of control. So, you know, we're not, we are thinking about these things. Oh, yeah. You just have to, you know, but if you're gonna just going to watch cable news every night, and get caught up in the next <laughs> Trump melodrama, you're going to miss a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. We should have shows where you get 15 or 20 minutes on the latest stuff that's actually going on in science. Yeah, it's called the Internet. <laughs> yeah, but they should be on TV. It's called it the easy. Internet. And it means we don't wait for the CEO of a media company to put it on. Although there's some very good science programs on television. But the fact is, it's all up there. We just have to take the time to, to dig in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or we can just get on the Trump merry-go-round. And by the way, if you're screaming and angry at Trump all the time, then you're just playing his game. Um, so, how do we get from that to Howard Rheingold? Okay, he was <laughs> mentioned in Radical Evolution, ah. and he's talking about something that I'm fascinated with, and I did write an article on this for the Trends Journal uh, last year on smart mobs. This fascinates me because there's always there's something I've always been fascinated with, and I'll 
bring up the question, then we'll, have to, we'll take our first commercial break, and then we'll dive into it. All right. We've talked about this before. It's, I think most people would agree, if you really look out at nature, the two most effective and efficient organizations in nature are not human. Right. Ants. Ants. Bees. And bees. We, we, we listen. Okay. <laughs> Both work on what's called swarming intelligence. Yeah. Mm. Our human word is smart, smart mobs. The problem from a human standpoint in modeling an ant colony or a bee colony is that none of them have individual free will. Right. And most of us don't want to give that up. Government would love it, but most of us don't want to give up our free will. So the $64 trillion question is, how do you create the benefits of swarm intelligence, and we'll get into what that actually is, with individuals that have free will? Well, we have people studying it and actually succeeding with it. And we'll get into that when we come mm. back with more of the Woodstock Roundtable. right on top of the music choices. Hi. This is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host. We are fortunate to have two co-hosts with us. Victoria Sullivan is our poet laureate, which means we get a poem later on. That's always a good thing. And Ron Van Wormer is an on-air weekend warrior here at Radio Woodstock. He engineers our show and helps uh, with the conversation. Our featured guest at 8.30 will be the founder and publisher of the Twin Trends Journal, one of the leading trends forecasters in the world, Gerald Salente. So we'll catch up on some cool trends, important trends. And we'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, and uh, Patrick Carl. We'll wrap up our show later on. So smart mobs, Howard Rheingold. In 1999 and 2000, Howard Rheingold started noticing people using mobile media in novel ways. In Tokyo, he accompanied flocks of teenagers as they converged on public places, coordinated by text messages. In Helsinki, he joined like-minded Finns who share the same downtown physical clubhouse. Uh, he learned that the demonstrators in the 1999 anti-WTO protest used updated websites, cell phones, and swarming tactics in the Battle of Seattle. A million Philippine citizens toppled the president of the country in 2000 through public demonstrations that were organized by text messaging. Hmm. This is swarm mobs, right? Now, obviously, a mob can be used for two very different purposes. Mm -hmm. So in the great yin-yang of human intelligence, we have this new technology which... So that we can, you know, people can, boom, swarm together to do good things like call attention to kids being torn out of their mother's arms, mm -hmm. right? If this was 20 years ago, 
we would have found out about this a lot later and it would have been a lot harder to do anything about it. Right. We got a yeah. in, transient president to change his mind, which he said he would never do very quickly. Right. In days. It might have taken months. And a lot of people know about it. But, you know, it was something like 2,300 kids that they took in recently um, and separated from their parents. It's not clear that anyone knows where they all are. You know, they sent 700 to New York State, yep. and they didn't tell the governor where they were. Yeah. And when least, he called up and tried to find Kingston. out, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. the rumor. There's two in Kingston. But but Cuomo contacted the office that was doing this and, and said, well, where are they in New York? I want to know what institutions. I want to send, you know, therapists. And, and, they, and they didn't answer his call. <laughs> and he emailed them. Right. And there is a kind of... When you think about it, even just with 2,300 people, which is a fairly good number, that do they have their names? Do they know where they come from? Does a three-year-old know how to identify himself or herself? So the parents don't really know where their kids have gone, for sure. But it's not clear that all the authorities know but where right, the kids right. have gone. And that story is well covered, and it's a crucial story. It's an important story. It's a fascinating story. Um, the point is that without... The technology of cell phones and instant messaging, et cetera, we wouldn't even, this story would, would could, they could have buried it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, as the, like the, the internment of Japanese Americans and in, in during World War II. Right. Um, so the point is that smart mobs can be used for, like, terrorists use this technology to wreak horror, mm-hmm. but it can also be used to save kids. Um, welcome to the human brain. But the point is that Rheingold became this expert and identified what, one of the first to identify what he's calling smart mobs. Um, drivers in the UK use mobile communications to spontaneously self-organize demonstrations against rising gasoline prices. Rheingold calls these new uses of mobile media smart mobs. He visited hotspots around the world where smart mob technologies and societies were erupting. Um, he now sees a third wave of change underway in the first decade of the 21st century. A combination of mobile communication and the internet makes it possible for people to cooperate in ways never before possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I wrote an article almost a year ago for the Trends Journal. Um, I don't remember the name of the company. You could look at it. It's in Kentucky. Um, but what they did is so remarkable to me. They created this technology where they got a hundreds of volunteers and everyone's on their computer. It didn't matter where you were in the world. And you had your mouse. And your mouse controlled a cursor. Okay, And they started out by saying, we want the group to predict who's going to win the Kentucky Derby. Now, they didn't select professional handicappers but obviously the people who volunteered probably you know might have had an interest in horse racing knew something about it they put all the names of the horses say right on the screen and now you had a cursor that you controlled with your mouse here were the instructions for this to work the people involved had to agree not to try to influence other people's opinions with your own but to literally just follow the force field that was being created by everybody moving their cursors. It's somewhat analogous to a Ouija board, right? So in other words, the idea was, let's assume you start moving your cursor towards 
a name that you like of a horse? Happy Boy. Okay, Happy Boy. You weren't, the point was not to try to influence others to go to Happy Boy. Your point was to feel, because they have the technology where, you, where, where your cursor was influenced by every other cursor. Mm. Now, typically what humans will do is, this is how they form, we form governments, is somebody emerges as a leader or as a dictator. Right. So people pull they, away from other candidates and move towards that one. Right. In other words, someone says, I want to be in charge, and, and they win the battle, and they end up moving people. That's not what this was about. This was mm. about cooperation, not competition. So the whole strategy was not to try to influence other people, but to feel where the force field was kind of moving of all these cursors moving. Right? Okay. They correctly predicted the, the first, second, and third place in the Kentucky Derby. Wow. Now, if you take the statistically most successful horse race handicappers, right? Say 10 of them. And have them go at it to see who's right. They would not win. They, they couldn't predict the first three. They're, they're, they're right some of the time, wrong a lot of the other times, right? It's all about the difference between cooperation and competition. And <clears throat> um, it, it's fascinating. So with the, this instant communication, we're learning more about swarming. So in other words, the, the, the kind of the almost the Zen Koan is, how do you create swarm intelligence? And we know that ants and bees create the most well-organized, efficient, colonies in nature <clears throat> but they do it without any self-will if you were born a drone in a beehive that's what you die you you just have one job if you take an individual bee or an individual ant out of its colony <clears throat> it has zero intelligence it has zero capability of surviving it has no ability or concept of how to adapt to its environment but put it in the colony and this intelligence emerges which is enormous so what these scientists are looking at and sociologists and neuroscientists and computer uh, technocrats are looking at is can we create that kind of swarm intelligence and still have individual free will I talked about this other experiment, which was in, which was mind-boggling. <clears throat> okay, they take these bots, which are miniaturized robots, about the size of a thimble each, right? Mm -hmm. So say there's a hundred of them. They program these bots to do two things. Well, they they can move around, right? They're mobile. They program them to avoid two things. Number one, avoid bumping into each other, so they can sense when they're about to hit one of the mm. other bots, and they don't go there. Right. They have proprioceptors. Okay. They're also programmed, because they're on a table, not to fall off the edge. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay? I like that. So now they start these, say, 100 bots in motion. Random motion. The only thing that, none of these individual bots have any intelligence. All they know is, I'm not going to bump into another bot, and I'm not going to fall off the edge. Within a, uh, within a certain amount of time, they start forming these intricate patterns. Mm. Mm. Beautiful spirals and all kinds of things. 
that they weren't programmed to do. In other words, the pattern emerged out of all this random movement. Mm -hmm. And there are astrophysicists who are now convinced that's how the universe wow. works. That it's, in other words, it doesn't prove that there isn't a God, but it does prove that you don't need a God to get the universe we have. Except as the original programmer, because these bots were programmed in two areas. The bots were, but we don't know that the bees and the ants were. But they have instinct. So that's a kind of programming. But that instinct did not necessarily come from somebody saying, I want you to have that instinct. Right. It, it, it could <laughs> very biologically. Well, it could very well have emerged out of the trillions mm -hmm. of interactions of biological entities. Mm -hmm. Out of that emerged instinct. Because it worked so well. Be because it worked. Just as these right. bots doing these patterns probably made it easier for them not to run into each other mm -hmm. and fall off the table. So they took the least, uh, you know, the road of least, le resistance of least resistance and least devastation. And, right. and just ended up doing the same thing because that's what made it the easiest to do their job. Right. And, and ants and, and bees have done the same. And now with cell phones, we can see that people could be ants and bees. <laughs> well, except we're not. Oh, hopefully not. Um, because where, where the experiment gets complex is that unlike the bots and unlike the ants and unlike the bees, we don't just follow instructions. Mm. That's not who we are. I think we're happy, as an aquarium, I'm happy about that. But we have some biological instructions, like if you don't drink fluids, you'll True. die of dehydration. And you know, the, about the only instinct that babies are born with is a very important one, to suckle. Mm. And within a few hours of birth, they're going around with their little mouths up in the air seeking a breast. Oh, maybe that's why our, cultural, <laughs> our culture suckles. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> so... Um, you know, but this is this is the game out of all this technology. Now that we are going to reprogram our own genetic code, we're already doing it. Now that we have access to exponentially more information, this is the grin. G is uh, genetic. Yep. R, R is, is robotic. robotic. I is information. N is nano, meaning we're miniaturizing all these things. So pretty soon we're going to have nanobots in the human body. Mm. Oh, running around that telling around. me what to do. Well, they're also running Don't go there. Don't go there. No, 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 you're falling off the table. Uh -uh. Okay, good, good. They're good. also going to run around and kill all the cancer cells that can right. kill you. And have a martini. I want one of those bots. Yeah. Uh, I smell the vodka. <laughs> you want a vodka-making bot? Wow. A martini-making bot? Yes, I do. I'll in sign up body. for that, too. Wow. I, I saw the Thin Man movie recently, you know, that old Nick and Nora Charles thing from the 1930s? And yes. all they do is drink. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They just drink all day long. They're the best. They and have, the, like, five or six martinis for lunch. And they solve every crime. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> it's random. They're, they're like swarming alcoholics, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Be the name of a, great, of a rock band, the swarming alcoholics. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So, anyway, smart mobs. Interesting, because smart mobs, listen, a terrorist organization can use smart mobbing to wreak terror. I know. Just as he, but you know, we're going to see how we do. Isn't this. that what uh, Hitler did? Um, well, he definitely 
he definitely created a mob mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's going to get interesting here. But, yeah, Grin, remember that one. Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, I don't know in our lifetime, but there are a lot of people listening to our show who in the, who's in lifetimes. These little nanobots can be running around inside the brain and the mm-hmm. body, right? Eating up those Alzheimer genes and eating up those cancer genes. That would be good. Mm-hmm. And who knows, but we don't know what the unintended consequences are. That's the, that's the <laughs> fascination with emergent theory. When you have all these interactions, what emerges is not always predictable. Absolutely. Probably it isn't predictable at all. Mm. Well, there's always side effects when you interfere with mm-hmm. things, regardless. It could be great side effects or mm-hmm. bad side effects, but there's almost always side effects. Yes, there and are. And there always seem to be new bacteria growing or new diseases, you know, because you know. the big fear in the 19th century was tuberculosis and then in the 20th century cancer, you know, and then – but new things keep coming in, including resistant uh, strains of things. One, one of the obvious side effects is that people will live longer. Without question. Which means that the population of the Earth will increase because people won't be dying off. They'll be replacing people, but not... But we'll need all those caretakers but here we get Now them. we get back to mob intelligence. <laughs> Nobody told millennials to have less kids. Mm. But they are, mm-hmm. statistically. They're too busy with their devices. They really don't want to be no, distracted. I would say that there is a collective intelligence, some, a lot of it unconscious, that they understand. Listen, I got this early. I mean, I have a hard time with it because most of my friends have kids. Mm-hmm. And what I don't say but want to say is, you know, why would you to have more than <laughs> one or two kids is selfish. It's absolutely selfish. I'm sorry to no. bust people's bubbles, but my God. What do we think? <laughs> oh, oh, but I'm I'm a smart person, so therefore I should have six kids. Uh, Screw you. Uh. <laughs> there well, go the were. big family <laughs> listeners. <laughs> they just signed yeah. off. The, Mormon, oh, well. the Mormons are out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the Catholics. Well, you've just you've just <laughs> and the Hasids. Oh, That's for sure. <laughs> Right. There's nobody listening anymore. <laughs> There's nobody listening anymore. <laughs> hey, the, the millennials are listening. Yeah. They're having less kids. Uh, that's true. And they're not doing it because someone told them to. It's I would call it mob intelligence. Well, it's it may be. And they may be the ones that live longer. They are going to be the ones who live, live yeah. longer, yeah. So in other words, I mean, and you, you may be right. We live longer. There'll be more people on the planet. But... There's su- there is an intelligence that is not always visible, and it doesn't always come from an individual choosing a certain way of being intelligent. Mm-hmm. We are influenced by others in ways we don't always understand, but we're starting to at least delve into what that's all about. And um, anyway... Uh, I'm going to be reading up more on smart mobs because I find that fascinating. I mean, in a way, our individual brains are smart mobs, right? We have billions of neurons and trillions of synaptic connections. And um, what emerges out of that is not always predictable, is it? Right. And sometimes you're walking down the wrong path intellectually. You know, you've taken a wrong turn. And you hope that those other neurons in your brain are going to say, wait a minute, (laughs) this was the wrong turn. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) 
Because <laughs> when I make a mistake, I always try to figure out back to where was the moment that I went astray that led me to this mistake? Because we tend to get more and more committed to our path as we walk True. down it. And then when you find out it's absolutely wrong, <laughs> you have to back up. Yeah, but what is our instinct is to double down on it. For a while, yes, definitely. You know, because we don't like changing our patterns. Even even when we're in a pattern, it's fascinating about the human brain. The human brain, we could absolutely know that the path we're on is self-destructive. Mm. But the the um, difficulty, the pain, the, the, the unpredictability of changing the pattern is greater than mm-hmm. the devastation we know the current pattern is creating. Right. Although the other little think thing we do is it would be destructive for everyone else, but I'm going to beat the odds. Right. <laughs> Which is, which is saying the same thing. I don't right. want to change my pattern. Right. It's it's that side of the brain. And this goes to our educational system. We're going to talk about this with Gerald because one of his great trend forecasts back in 2000 was remote learning, which is now possible and helped creating smart mm. mobs. And so this is why I remain optimistic about the, the only reason I remain optimistic about homo sapiens, okay, because we've created problems that we can't individually solve anymore. But... The new technology may make it possible for enough humans to get to, you know, to get together and decide to do something uh, productive about things like global change and hunger, et cetera. Um, this remote learning, I think, is could could be a real asset, but we don't like new patterns. We don't like admitting we've made a mistake. And the reason is our educational <laughs> system. What is our educational system about? Stuffing information into our heads. Right. And following rules. Yes. And <laughs> that's why we have Patrick Carlin end our show every year. He, does, he never met a rule he didn't break. <laughs> this is Who true. better to end our show than him? <laughs> yeah. And I understand some rules are crucial for his culture to survive. We get that. But it amazes me uh, how we are all so resistant to changing the patterns of our thinking. Absolutely. Because we were taught to think a certain way and to accept a lot of things. And that's why we love the, the Einstein who refused to accept the current paradigm. That's why we love the artist, you know, who who's sees something totally different, isn't afraid to express it. It's why we like the radical, you know, the, the certain radicals, mm-hmm. you know, who are willing to put a mirror to the culture um, the pattern breaker. But when we have facts that we believe are facts and then somebody discovers that it's not a fact, it's a very long time for mm-hmm. the mob mm-hmm. to change right. their mind about it's that right. fact. Mob, yeah. And you see that with the arts, the, the resistance to anything new, whether it's in music or painting or writing, like, well, that's not the way you do it. That's you know? right. <laughs> so well, it we're takes also a while for the mob to catch up it with. It does. In fact, it's usually they're so far behind that just as they hit a trend, it's over. And, and that's happening faster and faster. And politically, to me, what's fascinating, and Gerald's going to talk about it because I don't quite see, see it yet. Um, but millennials, I mean, this is an amazing stat. Not only are they having less kids, thank you, but <laughs> the majority of millennials have no faith in either political party. Mm. <laughs> now, they're not, athe- they're not political atheists, but they realize that, that having two parties doesn't work anymore. And 
Gerald will talk about, you know, the new millennial politics, which, again, could be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, as uh, we get, a, you know, because, you know, we keep going back to that great Yates line, you know, from the second coming. Uh, the center cannot hold. Mm. What is that about? The center cannot hold when there's a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. When things are shifting, that roller coaster has gotten to the apex. It's about to go down. It's both exciting and frightening at the same time because change is going to accelerate. It's not going to be a pleasant, gentle ride. It's going to yeah. be a roller coaster. It is, it is, it is a roller coaster. <laughs> Not even a standard roller coaster, one that occasionally tosses you out. Mm. Once in a while, you go flying down. Yeah, I don't know. That's the George Carlin to me. There's, you know, he used to love to. He said, "Oh, I love, I love those news events of you know roller coasters flying (laughs) off." And I have to admit, I have to admit, there's something in me that kind of enjoys that too. You know, I said, "Oh, oh, look at that roller roller coaster flew (laughs) off." Do you ride roller coasters? I did it once. Scared the living crap out of me. <laughs> I did it a few times as like a teenager, but I didn't enjoy it. Huh. But I was compelled to show what a tough I like, chick I was. I did like, <laughs> I liked the haunted house, even though it would scare me. Yeah? I liked it. Um, it scared me, but I liked it. But the roller coaster was in Atlantic City. I was in college. So it wasn't like I was a little kid being scared. I was like 19 or 20 years old. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you were smarter. You were wiser to be scared then. And the one of Atlantic City, as if a roller coaster isn't frightening enough, right? Because you're hurtling at such a speed that you realize it's possible this thing could fly off the tracks, <laughs> right? It feels that way, particularly it, when you take the dead run downhill, you know, like straight down. But in Atlantic City... You get to the top right of the apex, you know what you see? The ocean. <laughs> and it was night. Hey. All I saw was this dark <clears throat> ocean mm-hmm. that you're hurtling towards. <laughs> I, it was not fun at all. And yeah. your stomach can't keep up with you. These little kids are having a great time. Saying, I'm going, get me the hell out of here. I don't want anything to <laughs> Why do with this. Why are we doing this? Why am I doing this? <laughs> the only scarier thing than that is... Is like the food you get on the boardwalk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like saltwater taffy. That's taking who, your what life. What sadist in your hands. invented that? Yeah, dentist. A dentist. Who, who yeah. would have some work to do as it pulled out all your cavity well, at fillings? Any rate, get re- well. We're going to get used to the roller coaster because we are on one, and it's mm. genetic, it's robotic, it's information, and it's nano. Okay. Grin and bear it. We'll be right back. <laughs> WDST Woodstock, live, local, and independent, 100.1% homegrown. 